Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. With me today is Byron Edgington. He's a Vietnam veteran helicopter pilot, a 40-year commercial pilot, and an award-winning author. He retired from aviation in 2005 and then returned to college and received his bachelor's in English and creative writing at age 63. In 2012, was awarded the Bailey Prize in Prose. His latest book, Post Flight, an old pilot's logbook, was written with young aspiring pilots in mind, especially young women, which are hugely underrepresented in the aviation world. With that said, hello, Byron, and welcome to Back to Basics. Hello, Leticia. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's wonderful to be here with you. Well, I'm extremely excited because... We're definitely going to get to your book and how you are, uh, you know, advocating for young women. But, you know, as a big advocate for women in a very male-dominated industry, any time I see a man advocating for women to go into an industry, I say, this is a special person, so I need to have them <laughs> back to basics. <laughs> yeah. Well, Leticia, I should uh, give you a part of the reason for this and tell on myself a little bit. I, yeah. have, I have three daughters. Uh -huh. Life, of course. I have five sisters. Oh wow! Oh wow! So then am, definitely, we have a big advocate. Yes, I you. I am an advocate, and I have had the great fortune of being surrounded by strong women all my life. So, so I uh, I see why it's important, and just based on what I've heard uh, since writing the book and the research I've done, and you probably know the answer to this, uh, the ratio of women pilots worldwide in commercial cockpits is 6%. No way. 6%. 6%. That is crazy. That it is. is crazy. It is. So I'm trying to move that needle. And I didn't write the book specifically for young women, but uh, with an emphasis on their advancement. Absolutely. Wow. And you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not starting the interview as I always do, but I love it. I okay. recently wrote a book, and not a book, a blog, about uh, gender bias. And I, mm -hmm. I come from a Sicilian family. So I come from a very patriarchal kind of, okay. you know, institution oh, yeah. and background. Although I have to give credit to my dad, he always empowered us to really shoot for the Good. stars. But I, I recognize in the blog that the gender bias is so big that even when I fly and I see a woman in the cockpit, you know, because this is something my dad always noticed if we were going, it's like, oh boy, the woman is on the cockpit. And and I tend to do the same. And then you hear stories, you know, uh, of great women pilots, you know, saving the day. And they say, this is so sad that as a woman, I even have that ingrained in me. Yeah. Yeah, it is sad. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll show you a story. I just saw a very heartwarming picture on LinkedIn not too long ago or a captain, a woman who was a captain for, I forget what airline, I shouldn't mention airline names anyway, but she had a young woman 
young, young, like six or seven years old, and she was showing her around the cockpit. And it was a wonderful picture. And it, and I, my comment on it was, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's, yeah. And that's, that number's got to change. That's all. Well, and I'm so glad you wrote the book. And I know that I read in the research I did, you had a very good line about, if not, that what is it about, it's not about gender, in the cockpit, it's not about the oh, gender. It's, yeah, the aircraft doesn't recognize gender. Exactly. You know, it, it recognizes competence. That's it. I love, that's such a, a strong statement. Yeah. I think that's definitely your flagship statement right there. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll go with it. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, it's, this is fascinating. So I could keep talking about this and we will get back to it, but I definitely want to know about your, your beginnings, you know, your entire journey. It's a book in itself. And I know you've written four books and some, you know, mostly center about your, your recollection and stories of being in Vietnam and flying, which is obviously your passion. But, uh, you know, tell me where you're from, where where, where yeah. were you raised? A little bit about mm -hmm. young Byron. My young Byron. Okay, here it comes. I'm going to put on my young Byron hat now. <laughs> and um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And I was the second of 10 kids. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I say. I have four brothers and five sisters. And so, but here's a little story. In fact, I start the book with this anecdote. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, uh, I don't care who knows my age, this was 1958. Mm -hmm. So we lived across a fence from a TV station in Columbus. And one day I heard the clatter of rotor blades. Mm -hmm. And at that time, 1958, there were very, very few helicopters around. But anyway, this helicopter came in and landed in the backyard of that TV station. And this big Hollywood star got out of the helicopter and went into the TV station. Hmm. But for me, the star of that day was that helicopter. <laughs> I looked at that pilot flying that thing and I said, I want to be that guy. Oh, my God. You see, that's yeah. why I had to have you on the show, because <laughs> there's some people I love it when they had that realization at such an early age yeah, and it, yeah. you fell in love with the helicopter. <laughs> I did. And I just and unfortunately, I was very, very fortunate that I I it was a roundabout journey and I never imagined learning to fly in the army. But that's how it happened. I ended up in the Army, and I was offered a chance to go to flight school. Wow. And I jumped on it, and the next thing I knew, I was learning to fly helicopter. So and That's amazing. And so how, how old were you when, when you joined I went into the Army at, uh, at 20. I was 20 years old. Wow, so very young. And when you, when you started, I'm curious, was it? When you started, was it all that you envisioned or you say, oh, man, I made a big mistake here? <laughs> <laughs> there were times. <laughs> yeah. It was an interesting learning experience because the fellow that, I, that taught me to fly, he, he died several years ago. His name was Wayne Alexander. And Wayne was this big, burly Texan. And it was very profane. I can't begin to use some of the language on this show <laughs> that he was. But Wayne used when I would do things wrong or I wouldn't do, I wouldn't fly according to his standards. He had a, a bunch of 
yellow pencils with it. Mm-hmm. And he would smack the side of my helmet with these pencils until they broke <laughs> and yell at me in the cockpit in order to get me to learn things. And at the time, it felt like bullying almost. But I realized later on, he had two purposes there. He had to get me through flight school because we were on a rotation. He had to get so many students trained. But along with that, he had to figure out who could take that kind of pressure and who couldn't. Hmm. And uh, because we were all heading for Vietnam, every one of us. And so they had to know who could learn to fly and do it under pressure and, and succeed. So that was one of his purposes in doing that. But he taught me to fly, and, uh, and it yeah, took a while, and it was hot in the middle yeah, of Texas in the summertime, but, but it worked. Yeah. Oh, my. And I know you mentioned in one of your books that it's, it's the importance of having like a, a strong teacher, like a demanding teacher, you know, and, and I related mm-hmm. like even in my life, I think my, the best teachers have been the ones that are demanding and the ones that don't let slide the little things that can, in, in your case, as a pilot, can get you killed. Yeah, that's right. And, and this is something I discuss a little bit in the book, too, is, in fact, one of the underlying themes of post-flight, an old pilot's logbook, is a message to young people that you can do this. You know, there's no reason to assume that people need to be really smart or have exquisite eyesight or to have any kind of credentials. That's not necessary. If they want to fly, they can do that. And it does take a strong teacher, but you don't want someone who doesn't believe in you. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I can see that. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's uh, funny, but uh, even this interview has a, a soft spot for me because I have a brother and a sister. Mm-hmm. And my brother, from the time he's older than me, three years older, but from the time I can recall, he, he has a passion for flying. Oh, yeah. And uh, since a very young age, all the simulators you can imagine from like the very basic <laughs> Nintendo to the most sophisticated mm-hmm. air control gear that you can buy for a PC. Yeah. Uh, he did. And my dad never was obviously very keen of having him fly. So they made a deal. He would graduate engineering school mm-hmm. and then they would pay for the fly uh, uh, course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he did. Oh, and really? he take his private. He did a private license, private certification, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and this, I, I, I don't know, this is, and he's going to probably hear this episode. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I have my theory because I read about solo flights. That, that you write about what an impactful experience that mm-hmm. is. And I think after my brother took that solo flight, I don't know, something happened because at the end of the day, he took the certification. Mm-hmm. and uh, But then we live in Venezuela and you lived in Colombia. So you know this. He always has very, you know, suspicious of how they upkeep the, the planes you have to rent to fly. So right. he's always said, you know, unless I can buy my own plane, I'm not going to fly because I, I don't trust how they change the spares and but uh-huh. call it whatever. He got the certification and then he didn't keep flying. He uh-huh. keeps on simulators. I, I always bet money that he could fly the plane, but uh-huh. <laughs> any plane. Yeah. But, you know, I see that as a, as a career that could have been because he yeah. definitely has a passion even now at 50 some. So yeah. I think what you're doing is very important because I think there's a lot of people out there that other things get into life and, or they don't have the advice or they don't have a book like yours to read. Mm-hmm. 
that then they let life happen and they do not pursue that passion. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a shame about your brother because he probably does he talk about that lost opportunity or not? He doesn't openly talk about it, but he, this is a guy that even when I fly, he sends me where my plane is all the time. He knows uh, yeah. all the routes. He subscribes to all the aviation <laughs> um, magazines. I mean, I see that passion and I don't know, maybe he's happy about how, how life is, but I wonder, you know, at 52, 53, is he too old to re-engage in a flying career? Or flying, no, maybe not a career, I should say, but he could start flying. Oh, absolutely. Again. Absolutely. I need to connect the two of you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. What's his name? Salvador. Salvador. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Salvador. Salvatore. Let, let, me, uh, let me unpack what you just said a little bit more about uh, careers and so forth, because I touch on this in the book as well. When we talked about the aircraft doesn't recognize gender, but there's also and this is aimed specifically at young women, there's no pay differential between men and women. And there's not a lot of industries where that, I mean, it's finally starting to get to that point where there are laws protecting women and their pay grades and so forth. But it's never been the case in aviation where there's any discrepancy in pay. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and so that's one reason that they should give that some consideration. The other one is, it offers, I mean, it's a tough road to get to real success in aviation. I'm not going to disguise that. But once you make it in aviation, it's, it offers you a lot, especially for young women. It offers them their agency. It gives them latitude and whatever they want to do. They can go anywhere they want to go. It gives them a, a dignified career. And the analogy I used in the book, when I was in Vietnam, when I first got to Vietnam, as a brand new rookie pilot, I had to sit in the right seat of the helicopter. And the guy in the left seat, they were all guys, of course. The guy in the left seat was what they call the aircraft commander. And he, it was his helicopter. He made all the decisions. He made all the moves. And he even rarely let me touch the controls. And I knew very early that I had to get over to the left side of that aircraft. <laughs> I had, that was going to be the key to my making it through Vietnam. And so I worked as hard as I could to get over to the left side. And that's what young women, that's what aviation offers them is a chance to get into the left seat in their own life and take control of their own lives. And so, and like I say, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's a tough road. You know, it's not just something that falls in your lap. But it's worth pursuing for that reason, that they can have charge of their own lives if they go into aviation. Well, as I'm a big advocate of women getting into telecom, which is my industry, yeah, now I'm yeah. going to add aviation to my list when I'm... <laughs> okay, well, I, at some point, I want to ask you about telecom, too. And Absolutely. Uh, and it's Neptuno. a tough industry, too. <laughs> Neptuno, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is an industry. So tell me just because we are walking into the journey of your mm -hmm. entire life. So any particular, I mean, obviously, thank you for your service. It's the first time I interview someone that was in Vietnam. And that's, mm. I, I can imagine that what that meant overall for your life. Is there anything in particular that, that you like or can share from that experience as, you know, knowing all it represents? I'm sure that it had an impact in your life. Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, let me uh, let me think about that. Just I, you know, one thing I could 
if I'm allowed to plug another book here. Absolutely. I specifically wrote uh, my second book. It's called A Vietnam Anthem. Mm-hmm. And that talks a little bit about what effect the war had on me. And because I was, oh, I, I turned 21 years old in Vietnam. You know, and I think about that now. I think about 21 year olds flying a helicopter in combat. And it just, I can't imagine. Incredible. Yeah. I yes. mean, yes. so it made me the man I am today to a large extent, my experience over there, good and bad. Of course. Yeah. And so that I, and I go into some detail in a Vietnam anthem. I definitely yeah. will check it out because I'm, you know, I think those experiences, as you say, are, are what makes you resilient. And mm-hmm. I've interviewed people on this show that are, you know, like, uh, I, I interviewed, I had a German guest and her parent was an Nazi and she was German. Yeah, yeah. And she told a lot of stories about, you know, the terrible things she saw in her upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, but she's such an optimistic, radiant person that yeah, I, yeah. one of my things I said to her was, it's, it's so heartwarming to see someone that has gone through what you've been through. And yet you're a beacon of positivity. And uh, I can see the same in you. You have an amazing energy and, and you're doing such important work that uh, despite having endured, uh, I mean, as you say, at 21, it's unimaginable uh, to be yeah. in that situation with that kind of pressure. I cannot even imagine your family having, you know, a son overseas undergoing that. And uh, But then you made the most out of it. And that's always something that gives hope, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, I should mention, too, that, and you'll see if you read Vietnam Anthem, you'll understand that I, I've always been a little bit ambivalent about Vietnam because I don't want to get into politics here, but mm-hmm. it was a terrible mistake for this country. We should not have gone to Vietnam the way we did. You know, we had no business being in that country. But that war gave me an incredible career that I'm very grateful to have had. You know, it never would have happened without Vietnam. And so I'll always be a little ambivalent about that whole thing. But, well, uh, that, uh, yeah, that it takes, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, like uh, wisdom to recognize that. But mm-hmm. uh, so you, you, so you went from, and then you came back and then I know you were doing a whole lot of, you know, flying commercially mm-hmm. first. Yes, yes. And then tours in Hawaii, I read somewhere. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Okay, so now I'm going to take off my little kid hat and put my pilot hat on here, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I should mention first of the, the most gratifying flying that I did in my entire career. I spent 20 years flying uh, at a hospital, flying a rescue helicopter here in Iowa City where I live now. Oh, great. Yeah. And uh, in 20 years, I had 3,200 patient missions. Wow. And it was just absolutely the most gratifying career I could have ever imagined because it was matching my skills with people who needed my help at that moment. And there's no better way to live than that. And uh, I totally agree. Yeah. And, and by the time I had done that job a few years, I was very good at it. And one of the things that, in fact, one of the best things that ever happened to me in my career, let me share you just a small little tiny story. I overheard one of the fighters, he didn't know I was in the room, and I overheard him say to the other one that there were two nurses in the room, and he said, you know what, Byron's flying tonight, 
I, I always relax when he's here. <laughs> you know, and that was just absolutely the best thing I ever heard because when I flew, and this is something I would pass along to my uh, to anybody who decides they want to fly, that is your goal. And I mentioned it as one of the chapters is the care and feeding of passengers in the book. One of your goals, in fact, one of your primary goals in flying is to give your passengers an uneventful flight. That's what you want to do. If they have no idea they're in a helicopter or an airplane, they take off and land and where they're going to be, and nothing happens, then you've done your job. Yeah. So that was always always in my back of my mind. I want these people to just relax and forget they're even in the air. That's great. And I think that for the most part, and, I, and I'm a frequent flyer, I think that uh, we are getting to the point where almost like a little turbulence and people are like, uh, oh, my God, you know, we kind of forget <laughs> that we're actually in the air. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> because it gets so comfortable that, uh -huh. that you really do forget. And, and the job you guys are doing is incredible. And that takes me to like a side question, because mm -hmm. I, as, as, you, as you heard, like I have my brother on that, that. And we always talk about, you know, does technology, is technology impacting the skills of pilots? You know, like sometimes you, you say of doctors, well, doctors at the time were so good because they didn't have this, they didn't have monitors, they had to do it, you know, mm -hmm. the old fashioned way. Yeah. And now you see also that pilots, they have so many resources in the cockpit. What's your take on that? Yeah, um, good and bad, I would say, because you're right, we are. I mean, it's, it's hard to even recall the last time there was a major airplane accident. I mean, there have been some over the years, but con considering the, the accident rate 40, 35, 40 years ago, it's remarkable how many, and there's so much more aviation now, that it's an incredibly safe way to travel. Yeah. Now, the other side of it, that from my standpoint, having seen, I've got a perspective over 50 years of aviation here. Some of that technology, I, it concerns me sometimes what would happen if it failed? You know, do today's pilots, do they understand the basics well enough that if some system that's highly technological, if it fails, do they right away know what to do? you know, to go back to basics and fly the airplane, you know. And that's kind of the question. Yeah, like yeah. I say, this, because I see like the pilots that have saved the day, so to speak, mm -hmm. I see that they have like an Air Force background or something like where, you know, the background mm -hmm. is really solid. Yeah. Right. right and, yeah. and you wonder, has this been someone that just say, I'm going to start a career, you know, here and I'm yeah. learning with the latest tools. Would they be in the position to yeah. save the day the same way? Yeah. <laughs> Of course, the other side of that is that you don't learn to fly in a 787. You yeah, know, that's true. You know, when you're learning to fly, it's pretty basic stuff. And uh, so let me, uh, if, if I can, let me share an anecdote about that kind of thing and, and some advice that I give to people in the book. Uh, one of the things awesome. that, in fact, Wayne told me this when he was teaching me to fly, that one of the first things you need to do if you have an emergency in the aircraft. Always make a decision and stick to it. Don't change your mind. Hmm. You know, and, I, and I'm not going to compare myself to Captain Sullenberger, who put his airplane in the Hudson River. I'm not going to do that because the guy is just an amazing individual. But when I was flying in Ohio many years ago, 
uh, I had an engine fail in the helicopter I was flying. And it was just getting dark. It was almost dark at night. And I was about 3,000 feet, and the engine quit. And I made an immediate decision of where I was going to go and all the details, the airspeed, uh, the briefing the crew, everything got done within about three or four seconds. And I never wavered from that decision. Put the aircraft down on a field, and everything was fine, wow. which is exactly what Captain Sullenberger did that day. And people were talking to him about alternatives. Maybe you can go back to LaGuardia. Maybe you can make it to Teterboro. He says, no, we're going on the river. And that's why those people all survived that. And so that's, that's, that's some of the advice I give in the book is that when you're flying and you have something happen, make a decision and stick with it. Yeah, I think that's such, I mean, obviously important advice in the, in an aircraft, but also in life in general. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. even as an entrepreneur, I see it happen all the time. People that their gut feeling tells them to do something. And then, yeah. you know, when things don't happen right away, they start second guessing themselves mm -hmm. and they start changing here, changing there. And then you're not committed to one plan. And I think that also yeah. always uh, brings a lot of uh, undesirable you know, results because it's also you're 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 non-committed yeah. to to the solution. Yeah, it certainly can, and and it, that reminds me of a one of the, my favorite aviation expressions. We always said that gravity is not just a good idea; it's the law. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. That is true. That, that's true. Yeah. And so, Byron, you are also a perfect back to basics candidate because. At uh, later, when you retire from being a pilot, you decide to go back to school. I did, yes. <laughs> and this is something I say, oh, when I read that, I say, oh, he's perfect. Because there are so many people that say, oh, I'm too late. I never did this. It's too late. It's too late. And you're the perfect example. Tell me about how did you decide or why did you decide yeah. to go back to get your degree? And now you publish four books and you're uh, uh, an award-winning author and you really made it happen I did. for you as well as a writer. I did. And uh, yeah, I'm reasonably proud of that. Although I have to bring my wife into here because here's the short version of how that happened. We were at an event in Columbus. Uh, where the Ohio State University marching band was performing. And the guest or the the MC, basically the host of the whole thing, uh, we were sitting around at a bunch of tables. And he said, can I have all the Ohio State alumni please stand? And at that time, I was not. I had gotten drafted out of Ohio State when I was 19 and went into the Army. You know, and I, I was halfway through college. And so at that night when I when he did that, when he said that, I couldn't stand up because I wasn't an alum. And on the way home from that that night, I told Mariah, I said, you know what, I might think about going back and finishing up my degree. But you know what, I'm going to be 63 years old. And her immediate response was, you're going to be 63 anyway. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And so... Within a couple of days, I went into the office at Ohio State, and and they welcomed me back with open arms. And and I said, you know, so I tell people I had a 40-year gap year. Yeah. <laughs> a 40-year, very interesting very, gap yes, year. Very interesting gap year, yeah. But, yeah, the message is it's never too late. Never it's too never late. too late. You know, and I'm sure I'm not anywhere close to being the oldest person ever to get a bachelor's degree. 
Uh, well, you're just, you're very young still, but uh, I, I think that because it's the spirit and it's like my dad is 87. He goes to work every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every time we were we were in Sicily for the summer, and uh, I always look at the square where he in his town, oh, wow. right, really little town, and I'm like, Dad, why you never go there? There's probably people that you know. It's like, are you crazy? It's all, all full of old people. I <laughs> said, <laughs> <laughs> so you're probably the oldest <laughs> if you ask me. If you walk in there, but he never can get himself to see. As an older, uh, as an old person, yeah, yeah. like he doesn't portray himself as as one. So I think <laughs> it's all in the spirit and and how you approach sure. life. And honestly, I, I'm glad that he's like that. That he yeah. he's still um, uh, eager to take on new things. Yeah. Okay. So I I guess this presents a question for you then. Um, so okay, I love it. <laughs> English, Spanish, Italian, and French. And French. Yeah. Yes. I'm yes, jealous. I love languages. Yeah. I love yeah. languages. I have to say that's one of my my passions. And uh, yeah, but you speak very good Spanish. Yeah. That, tell me your tell me your list. You, I'm sure you have a list too. Yeah, English and half Spanish. Let's put it that way. No, no, you speak you speak good Spanish. Yeah. Byron, as you share with me that he had lived in Colombia. How did you end up in Colombia? Yeah, well, that's an interesting story. Um, we for for my wife's health, basically. Because we were in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, she had two back surgeries. Mm-hmm. And she could no longer tolerate cold weather in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And so we started looking for a place that, first of all, we could afford. And that had temperate climate. And we f- discovered Medellin, Colombia, and it was absolutely perfect. And, mm, uh, and are you sure you didn't include it? Has besides your wife being beautiful, be- the most beautiful women in the world is supposed to be said. Yeah. <laughs> and as a Venezuelan, and that's Venezuela, something that I don't say happens. Yo soy Venezuela, soy Venezolana. Yeah, but we uh, we just absolutely loved Medellin, and uh, the, uh, especially the people, the Colombianos are just. I mean, with the exception of Venezolanos, of course. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. thank you. <laughs> are just incredibly kind and courteous and wonderful people. They're just wonderful. And we had a great that experience is, there, yeah. That is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, um, Byron, as we, I mean, I could talk with you forever. I love it. Is there anything else uh, exciting that you want to share with the audience uh, besides, I mean, being the author of four books and mm-hmm. your latest book, anything we didn't touch, anything else you want to share with the audience? Yeah, well, I guess I would reinforce the idea that young people should look at aviation. You know, there's, unfortunately, I think folks in aviation haven't done a very good job of recruiting, and there is a real shortage of pilots right now. So I would encourage people who want to do this to look into it give it some real consideration and uh, of course i've all i would also encourage them to read my book i will put yeah. it on the show notes i definitely personally gonna definitely read the vietnam vietnam anthem i'm very curious about that and i'm gonna give my brother yeah. your book Please, so you never know what i can spark there Salvador <laughs> necesita un libro. sure to reunite because you know I I always uh, ask this question at the end of the interview I know for example in my brother what makes him tick is that like anything related to flying I know it makes him tick besides flying because Mm -hmm. that's obviously very important to you is there anything in the times where you've been down in the times where you don't feel you know that connected to your true essence Uh, is there anything that makes you tick 
Yes. Um, well, the love of my wife, for sure. Oh. I mean, she is my world. And so oh, that's such a yeah, and she's really all I need. So I could just quit writing tomorrow and I had to have everything in the world. Yeah, I think what I would uh, what I would say to that is that we uh, we need to learn to own our value, especially women. Women have I in fact I'm gonna I'm not I'm not patronizing here. I think the the world, uh, the future is female. And I think women really do need to own their value. They need to understand just what kind of, what they have to offer. I mean, everybody has a gift, but I think women especially, they have a gift and I think they must share it with the world. And that's why I think they belong in cockpits because, you know, and it's a terrible generalization, I suppose, but women are more adept in my my experience at, uh, at collaboration. You know, there's men are great pilots. I've flown with a lot of terrific pilots. But I think women are better at sharing and asking for advice and for help and for interacting with each other, I believe. And so in some element, in some way, I think they're probably, in general, again, a terrible generalization, but I think they probably at least potentially make better pilots. So, hmm. so what gets me up when I'm down? Finding ways to help other people. You know, it's just, it's, I, I don't remember ever being down far enough that finding something that I could do for someone else didn't bring me up. And so I guess that may, it probably doesn't have anything to do with aviation. But the metaphor I've used in the past is I spent my entire life lifting people up. That's what I did. And I have found since I retired that I continue to do that. And it feels so good when you can see someone else succeed, that that's a good way to get out of the doldrums and, and to raise yourself up is by raising somebody else up. You know, and I, I have to say too, the day I had to quit, because I had to quit flying, I lost my uh, medical clearance to fly. And it was, it was an awful time for me because I mean, it felt like somebody had torn my legs off. You know, and I really was lost for a while. But I decided that, you know, I'm, it's done. I had a great career. And I was able to transport lots and lots of people safely. And I did it well. And I got a lot of awards for it. So now it's time to do something else. And so I started looking for ways to help other people. And so that. And you married all your passions so well. You married your passion for writing, obviously, your passion for flying, your passion for advocating and helping others. I did. And and to me, that's really the back to basic essence is when you're able mm -hmm. to intertwine all your passions yeah. to live a fulfilled life. And and mm -hmm. and honestly, I you're an inspiration because by hearing you speak, you've done it so well, and it hasn't been an easy cake. And of all the journeys no. I've heard, yours is definitely yeah, yeah. one that it's uh it's worth highlighting. But yeah. uh, but it, it's an um, an amazing journey. Okay, so now give me give me some time time about telecommunications here and Neptuno because I've looked well, at your website and stuff but tell me how you got there and where you are right now well I work in the family business also although I yeah. said I would never do it mm -hmm. and uh, but I went into telecom not because I, I I came straight into the family business so as, as a way of life I say well this is ironic that I end up here 
And, uh, you know, my dad is a Sicilian immigrant that went to Venezuela in the 50s with no career. He actually, I never shared this, he actually leave, left his home in Sicily at 16, begging his dad to, that he wanted to join the Air Force wow. in Italy ah. to be a helicopter pilot, really? believe it or not. Ah. Yes. <laughs> and he was a helicopter pilot. No kidding. But he was, at that time, he was born in 1934. So it was really fresh of the war. It was very strange times. And... In any case, he went into the Air Force and he went, he went as, as high as possible in, in it. And then because he didn't have a degree, he said, OK, I'm done here because I, uh, that, this is the highest I'm going to reach. Yeah. And so he left. And in any case, I ended up in telecom because of him. Yeah. And that's the business he founded. And, uh, you know, it's been an interesting career and it's a very male-dominated industry. Yeah. And only now I feel after 25 years in it. I feel that I'm getting the microphone a little bit more in at the conferences, at the events. Yeah. I always joke around for a woman. It's fun to go to a conference. It's the only place where men wait at the bathroom and we don't. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> every time I see the bathroom line, I say, now you feel what yeah. we feel at concerts everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of sad, too. I mean, that shows you how many. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are trying to change it. Right. We're trying to change yeah. it, but definitely finding people like yourself, like in my industry, you see a lot of women pushing each other, pulling each other up, right. lifting each other up. Right. And now I think the women have realized if we help each other, mm -hmm. we can get further yeah. because for a long time, even the women, and I say this sadly, they, it was worse than the men. Like the few women that were there, they kind of were protective of where they were and they didn't like other women advancing as well. Mm -hmm. This was my experience. Yeah. Instead, now I'm living the time where other women are empowering and encouraging mm -hmm. uh, each other. And it's very refreshing to see. So I'm excited yeah. about this time. Good. But I, I'm even more excited about seeing men like you, you know, because I think when the push comes from, from men, it's so much more powerful than it comes from a woman. Mm. Well, because yeah. other men listen to and they start questioning because yeah. I find that a lot of men say things, but when they have the chance to make change happen, they don't take it, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And so that's where we are. But I think it's an exciting time overall. So I think your grandchildren, you know, those that are female have a, a bright bright uh, array of opportunities ahead of them. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I, I look forward to the day when people look into a cockpit of an airplane and see two women there and they don't think anything about it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And that's really the key to gender bias. You know, mm -hmm. it's it, like in my case, the story I share, like I definitely not, uh, I don't mind, but the fact that I th think about certain yeah, yeah. things still, you can tell there's gender bias. Yeah. The moment, as you say, when we don't even realize, we don't think anything, we just go into the plane like nothing, that's, right. that's the moment we know change has happened. That's right. Yeah. So, so this is great, Byron. Well, I want to thank you for your time. This has been fantastic. Leticia, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, I might have to get your address later on because I think your dad needs a book. Okay, perfect, yeah, perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. I will I will I will give it to you for sure. Okay. And uh, I'm pretty sure that our audience is gonna be as excited as I am of this episode. And I thank you for your time, your service, and your dedication. You're welcome. Thank you again. Muchas gracias, amiga. Gracias igualmente. Until the next episode of Back to Basics. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe 
Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you and until the next time.